Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Well, I want you to listen to the words of Philip Ryken. He wrote these words in his book, City on a Hill, and this is what he said. He said, we are living in post-Christian times when Christianity is no longer exercising a prevailing influence on the mind and hearts of our culture. He says, there was a time when our fundamental notions of freedom and justice were firmly embedded in the bedrock of biblical truth. He says, there was a time when Christianity shaped the social, political, moral, religious, and intellectual landscape of the United States, and I would add Canada. He goes on, as our civilization continues to decline, listen, the church will have unprecedented opportunities to show the world what a difference it makes to be a Christian. The question is, how should a Christian live in post-Christian times? What does it mean to be a city on a hill today? Now, these are some of the questions that we are seeking to answer in this new sermon series that we're starting today called The Church, Its Purpose, and Why It Matters. And these and many other questions that we're going to be addressing are vastly important questions for our times because it's become very apparent that the pressures of recent years have clearly revealed among many things, that professing Christians everywhere seem to have a very deficient understanding about the essence of who they are in Jesus Christ and the essential nature of the church to who they are in Jesus Christ. And the devastating implications of this woefully deficient ecclesiology, the study understanding of what the Bible says of the church upon individuals and families and church communities and secular societies, both locally and all over the world. The past two years have revealed a lot of things. And one of the things that's become very clear is that in many cases, the church does not know what it means to actually be the church. So why do a series on the church? Why spend time strengthening our understanding of ecclesiology? Understand that word. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Why do a series? Well, the answer to that question in part is because we are the church. And if we fail to understand and grasp what the Bible teaches about the church, we fail to grasp and understand the theological realities concerning the essential nature of who we are. 
as Christians and what our purpose is on the earth. And in a world that's laden with identity confusion, in a world that can no longer define logically and truthfully what a man is or what a woman is or what a family is or what parents are supposed to do or what a marriage is, the church cannot afford to join into the confusion. We have a very clear identity. And by definition, the church must stand out with clarity and humility and purpose as salt and light. And contrary to what many people may think, including many Christians, the Bible teaches that the church of Jesus Christ has a very bright future all over the world. Theologically speaking, the church is not a weak, defeated, struggling, confused institution. Although the ignorance of God's people everywhere are contributing to this false notion. Instead, truthfully, the church of Jesus Christ is a mighty, victorious, advancing, thriving, and purposeful people, and God himself is within her. God is within the church. God is in the church. And so it's high time that we begin to rise up out of the ashes of our ignorance and begin to live in the beauty of our God-given purpose together and in the world, all for the glory of God. And so today we get started. The title of this morning's message is this, What is the Church? What is the Church? Do Do you know how to answer that question? What is the church. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to Matthew chapter 16. I'm going to read verse 18. I'm going to ground ourselves there, and then we're going to launch out into several passages of Scripture to help us to answer this all-important question, what is the church? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus is speaking, and he says this, and I tell you, speaking to the disciples and namely to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, listen, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to read that one more time and I want you to let the word of God take root in your heart. The second part of verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here in Matthew 16, 18, we have a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here we have Jesus' promise to do the thing that only Jesus can do. Here we have Jesus' promise to do the thing that no one can stop him from doing. 
Here we have the promise of Jesus Christ to do the thing that every true Christian longs for and lives to see. Jesus promises in no uncertain terms that he will build his church. Now, I was very tempted to stay right here and expound this text in its context. That's normally what we do in this church. We take a passage of scripture and we go verse by verse and line by line and we understand it in its historical context. And, and, and we're not gonna do that particular thing today because I need to go to other portions of scripture launching from this passage of scripture. And it's been very important for me to do that today because I wanna begin today here in Matthew 16, 18 in order to highlight that this is the very first usage of the word church in the New Testament. And it's important for me to start there because in order for us to answer the question, what is the church? We need to examine how that word church is used in the Bible. So that's why we plant ourselves in Matthew 16, 18, because this is the first time we see the word church. And Jesus is the one who uses it. Now, very important for us to understand the word church. It's translated here from the original Greek word, ecclesia. Ecclesia, it comes from two Greek words translated out and to call. So the ecclesia, the church, are the called out Ones, you need to understand this. The called out ones. It's important also to understand that Jesus doesn't randomly pull this word out of nowhere. The word ecclesia is the same word found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus uses the same word ecclesia that was used in the Old Testament often to refer to God's people. Also very important for us to understand that in ancient Greece, the word ecclesia was used to describe the assembly of the called out citizens who came together to do business. And historically, the word was widely used to describe just that, an assembly, a congregation. Ecclesia, the church or church, it appears in the New Testament 114 times. And in 109 of those occurrences, it refers to the organized assembly of God's people in two senses, both locally and universally. On the screen for you, I want to share what John Hammett wrote, a pastor and scholar. He wrote this, in designating themselves Ecclesia, the early Christians were taking a word already in use by Greek-speaking Jews to refer to the people of God in the Old Testament and thus making a claim to some degree of historical connection to that earlier people. They were also using a word that reinforced the idea that the church is made up of those summoned or called by God. So, what is the church? 
Well, based on the uses of the word translated church, ecclesia, the concept of God's holy people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testaments, we can define the church this way. It's on the screen. The church is the assembly of the called out people of God. The church, the assembly of the called out people of God. In other words, the church is the organized, physically embodied assembly of God's holy people whom he has called out of darkness to himself to be a people for his own possession. The church, the ecclesia, God's people, God's holy people, God's congregation, God's assembly. And this means, loved one, then, that the church is certainly not a physical building. You think of the modern-day uses of the word church, and you think of that building or that place. The church is not a physical building. It means that the church is not merely a collection of fragmented individuals. It means that the church is not just any group of people gathering together like a soccer club or a book club. The church, loved ones, is the assembly of God's holy people whom he has called out of darkness to himself to be one people for his glory, for his purpose, for the joy and hope of all nations. What is the church? the assembly of the called out people of God. Is that enough? Can we end the sermon there? We've defined church. We've looked very briefly at the uses of the word church. No, no, there is so much more. Some suggest that there are at least 96 images in scripture that help us understand the essential nature of the church. This morning, we're going to dive deep we're just going to unpack two of the most prevalent images Scripture gives us so that we can have a greater understanding and answer this question, what is the church? And I have been praying for you, and I am praying for our church, that as we unpack these images as the holy inspired word is brought to us and shown to us that we will wrap our arms around the right understanding of the church and we will live it out in a way that glorifies God, edifies the people of God and reaches lost people for his glory. The church, the assembly of the called out people of God are this, firstly, write this down, uh, the family of God. The family of God. On the screen, John Hammett went on and he wrote this. He wrote, when the references to the church as a household, the references to God as the father of believers, and the references to believers as brothers and sisters are added together, they become so pervasive that the comparison of the Christian community with a family must be regarded as the most significant metaphorical usage of all. The church of Jesus Christ, the scripture presents to us, is the family of God. I remember years ago when my children were small, I remember one of them, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them asked me, Daddy, how come you call everyone in church your brother? And the answer to that question is, of course, that they are my brothers and sisters, that the people in the church 
are my family. They are our family. That's why when I greet you after the service, if you're a guy, I'm going to say brother. If you're a girl, I'm probably going to say sister because we are brothers and sisters. Notice on the screen, J.I. Packer wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. You ever think about that? The church is the family of God. In Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus teaches us, when he teaches us to pray, to address God as our Father. We are his children. The church is the family of God. In John 1, verse 12, we're taught that people aren't born into the family of God, but those who receive Christ by faith have been adopted into his family. This is beautiful. And once we were illegitimate children, once we did not belong to the family, but now we belong to the family of God. In Mark chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus said that those who do his will identify as his brother and sister and mother. And all throughout the epistles, the apostle Paul uses the term brother 134 times and sister five times referring to fellow Christians. And he calls the church the household of God. What is the church? The church is the family of God. These images of the church as a family, the images of Christians as brothers and sisters with God as our father are absolutely crucial in correcting our often misguided and individualistic ideas of what the church really is. And I'm praying that as we go through this message, the, the spirit of God is challenging your heart and maybe bringing to light some misconceptions you have of the church. The church, loved ones, is the family of God. Notice on the screen, John Hellerman explains why the image of the church as a family mattered so much in the historical context of the New Testament. Listen to what he wrote. He wrote this. In the New Testament, the group took priority over the individual. In light of ancient Mediterranean cultural sensibilities, the use of sibling terminology indicates that Jesus wanted his followers to interact with one another like members of a strong group, surrogate family characterized by collectivist solidarity and commitment on every front. Wow. Is that how you understand the church? <coughs> Stop for a moment. Consider this. Is the church for you an event to attend? Once a week, you come to the event and the event is marked by entertainment and there's lights and there's music and there's a speaker. And then maybe you leave that event and you feel encouraged, or maybe you leave that event and you feel challenged, but you go off and you walk out the doors and you don't interact with anyone else. It's like an event to attend. Is that how you view the church? Or is the church a family that we belong to? 
with genuine love and deep bonds and patient endurance in times of trouble and grace with one another when we mess up like a family. Because that is what the Bible says we are. The family of God. Inspired scripture employs the image of a family in a context that understood family as the strongest and closest bond. Understanding this historical context must awaken. And I pray, I pray, I pray that awakens in us our remarkable lack of alignment with what God desires and intends for his church. There is a remarkable lack of alignment. I remember when we were preparing to plant this church nine years ago. A seasoned older pastor said something to us, myself and a group of church planners that I didn't really understand in the moment. He said to a bunch of guys who are about to, a bunch of men and women, husbands, wives, about to go plant churches in various cities across Canada and the United States, he said this. He said, be prepared you will be preaching to a passing parade. He said, people will come and people will go, some for good and understandable reasons and many for bad and perplexing reasons. I didn't quite understand that when he said it. But now nine years in, I have a sense of what he meant. In his book, When the Family, When the Church, excuse me, Was a Family, Hellerman wrote this. It's on the screen. Listen to this. He wrote, long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust. That word means a strong desire to travel. But we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs like trees repeatedly transplanted from soil to soil. These spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Many pastors in North America and the Western world are preaching to a passing parade. Uh, there's reasons for people to leave churches. Of course there are are very good and biblical and logical and sensible reasons for people to leave churches. But I suggest to you that many people leave churches for unbiblical reasons because of a consumeristic mindset, because of an it's not doing anything for me anymore mindset. And they come and they go and they suffer. And the church suffers. Because as Hellerman points out, long-term relationships are the crucible of our growth and sanctification. And just as you get to know people, they say, I'm out of here. And just as you start attending a place, I found something better. 
That's not the New Testament picture of the church. The church is the family of God. Marked by strong bonds. Strong relationships. Like a family. And if you must leave a church, you involve the family in that decision. And you walk together in that. Why? Because you're a family. You don't just disappear. But oh, how many disappear. Nowhere to be found. I wonder how many forfeit the opportunity for progress in the Christian life. They say, I, I'm not growing. I, 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 I'm not learning the way I need to learn. I'm not, I'm, I'm not changing the way I need to learn. I, I need more happening in my life. Well, stay in one place and grow with the family of God. That's how you grow. Being with the family. And maybe some people leave because when things got hard in a church, they just took off. Because maybe they were never taught how to deal with it when things get hard. Maybe in family life, that's what they were taught when they grew up. They just take off. Some people just take off when things get hard. Sometimes people take off because of legitimate questions or concerns they have. But they come just short of doing the hard work over time of communicating and arriving at clarity and alignment with the people of the church. Or others, they just take off because they get bored. They're bored of the pastor's sermons. They're bored of the pastor's particular style. They're bored of that particular local pastor's particular burden. They're more blessed listening to five other podcasts during the week. And they say, five years of this guy is enough. Two years of this guy is enough. Starting to get to know this guy. I'm starting to see a little bit, starting to see some flaws in this guy. That's enough. Maybe we get bored of familiar relationships. We get tired of this local church's particular weaknesses. And every church has them, by the way. Every single church has weaknesses. Don't misunderstand me, loved ones. As I said earlier, there's a time and a way for people to leave churches, but it should be very hard. Why? 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 Because the image given to us of scripture of what a church is, is the family of God. I don't just take off on my wife. I don't just walk away from my children. I don't just walk away from my brothers and my sisters, my cousins. I don't just leave them. We are the family of God. Question for you. Is this church your family? Now, when I say that, I understand I'm looking around. There's a lot of faces that I don't even recognize. Certainly through the pandemic, so many people relocated. We saw so many of our key leaders moving out of the city for legitimate reasons and all of that, I understand. And the beauty of that is that they get to plant themselves in another local church and find fellowship and find family. But we get to experience fellowship with a bunch of new people too. But here's the question for you. Is this church your family? Or at the very least, have you understood it to be that? 
so that it shapes the way you live here. It shapes the way you engage here. It shapes the way you view coming to worship God together or attending a small group gathering together or coming to a small group and being with the family of God together or serving in the city together. It it just shapes the way you view all these things when you understand the Bible says the church is the family of God. Maybe you're here and you have a genuine desire to connect and form deep bonds. If that's you, I just encourage you to just affirm that in prayer before God right now. You can just in your heart say, Lord, I, I want to have family here. I, I do feel alone here. I want to grow here. I want to have relationships here. I want to connect in meaningful ways. I want to move beyond where I am, Lord, with my relationships. Make that your prayer and God will help you. And we want to help you too. Because the church is a family. One way you can get started is by joining us tonight. On the screen is a graphic of our kickoff event happening tonight. Please don't misunderstand. This is not a program that we're advertising. This is not an event. The way we're viewing this is an opportunity to come together as the church and rally around the word of God. And tonight we are going to be challenged with what does a Christ follower do? What does a Christ follower look like? And then we're going to do our best as a team to hand you tangible handles for you to get a hold of so that you can move out from the fringes into the family if you want that. And I'm praying you want that. Then don't sit in front of Netflix tonight. Don't pull out that bag of chips that you've been salivating over all week and said, Sunday night, that's mine. Don't do that after, after the kickoff. Come tonight. We're going to be meeting at St. James United Church at 7 p.m. We're going to worship. We're going to hear the word. And then we're going to help you to connect to the family. It's going to be beautiful. Keep each other accountable on that. Bring your family and friends to that because we are the family of God. All right, the assembly of the called out people of God are the family of God. Finally, this, I wish I had time to unpack more. Let me just tell you, I had at least four on here, and then I had to bring it down to two because there's just so much. But the second image the Bible gives us, we are not only the family of God, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. There are four places in scripture that compare the church to the body of Christ in life-changing ways, if we can embrace it. There's Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and Colossians 4. We're going to look at it in a moment. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul stresses the fundamental unity of the church, even in the midst of its diversity and its diversity of functions. Look at it on the screen. Romans 12, 4 to 5 says this. This is the word of God. It says, for as in one body, we have many members. You see the image there? The body. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. On the screen, 1 Corinthians 12 goes into an elaborate illustration of just how interdependent we really are. Notice it on the screen, starting from verses 14 to 19 and then 24 to 26. This is what Paul writes. He says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, That would not make it any less part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There's so much in these verses. These verses are teeming with truth concerning the essential nature of the church, so much that we must receive and live out. For example, if the church is one body, then we must care immensely about its unity. One body, many members. The essential nature of the church is we are a united body. United first into Christ and because of our union with Christ, united to one another. Practically speaking, then, we must never be agents of dissension and division. I'm pausing here for a moment. The Bible says we are one body. Far be it from any of us to be agents of dissension and disunity. Getting in a corner with a group of people over here, saying how bad this group of people is over here, or getting around the dinner table and talking about how, oh, can you believe what the pastor said that day? And, and, and all of that stuff. There's a place to talk. There's a place to communicate. There's a place to share, but not in a divisive way, not in a way that stirs up dissension. We are one body and the unity of the body is critical to the essential nature of what the church is theologically and practically. Further to that, if the church is one body with many members and all the members have different functions, Romans 12, 4 tells us, then we should all welcome one another's differences and celebrate our diversity. Some in the body are teachers. Some are administrators, some are encouragers, some are evangelists, some are hospitable, some are leaders, some are behind the scenes, some are in the forefront. Here's the beauty of the body. The beauty is in our unity, not our uniformity. We are all different and we all have different functions. Practical implication. The body needs you. The body needs your gift. I sometimes say in our previous, our step two class, I say, what would happen if me as the pastor didn't show up to church one day? Well, everyone would say, what would happen to the pastor? Where is he? Why? Because I have a forefront role, but it's no less more important than your role. You consider your spot in the same way when you don't show up to the body, when you don't show up to church, when you don't show up to love and encourage and use your gifts. It matters in the same way as if I didn't show up and the pulpit was empty. Because I have a role, but you have a role. You have a function. You have a gift. We are one body with many members. And not all the members have the same function. That's what makes the body so beautiful. That's what he's illustrating. Paul is very clear. The strength of the body is in its unity, not its uniformity. 
building on that. And in light of that, 1 Corinthians 12, 25 highlights the need to honor all members and not to put undue emphasis on certain parts over the others. Rather, Paul says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Watch this, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. In other words, all are crucial for the care and mutual upbuilding of the body. It's so hard and exhausting for a pastor or a church leader or a group of pastors and church leaders to feel like they have to carry the load. Why? Because it's not according to God's design. One pastor or a group of leaders are not designed to carry the whole load of kingdom responsibilities. We are, as Paul says, there for the mutual care of one another. That's why I love that I hear about so-and-so over here visiting this member in the hospital over there and -and so-and-so over here helping financially this member over here and -and so-and-so over here caring for this family as they seek to move or go through their tragedy. We all have mutual care for one another. This is the church, the body of Christ. And I don't want to be exhausted functioning unbiblically. I want the whole body to function beautifully. That's what we're going for. You matter here. God says it because we are the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2, Paul introduces to the image of the body, the head. The head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. Most significant here in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2, he doesn't emphasize our interdependence with one another, but he stresses our total dependence on Jesus Christ. And this is critical in our understanding of the church in these days. Look on the screen, Ephesians 4, 15 to 16 says this. Rather, Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when every part is working properly makes the body grow. So it builds itself up in love on the screen. Colossians two, 18 to 19, Paul says, let no one disqualify you insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up with Uh, without reason by his sensual mind, watch this, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. You know, loved ones, the church growth movement, particularly as it evolved in the 1980s, dished a terrible blow to biblical ecclesiology that we're still recovering from. Perhaps at the beginning of the church growth movement, maybe good intentions, motives were involved back in the 1960s. But a terribly unbiblical notion became cemented into the minds and hearts of pastors and church leaders everywhere. The notion is this, uh, we can make the church grow. That's the idea. 
And the church growth movement produced all kinds of books and resources and curriculum. Five ways to grow the church. Five ways to move beyond 200 people. Five, ten ways to make people want to stay in your church. Thirteen ways to make sure people feel comfortable in your church. All these different things. And in an, an attempt to make the church grow, there was a movement towards pragmatism and maybe away from prayer. There was a movement towards methodology rather than an emphasis on biblical theology. There was a movement towards new strategies and innovation rather than the simplicity of biblical teaching and discipleship in the context of servant leadership. And what we're left with here is a love for celebrity in the church and no understanding of what the church is. That's why the pandemic became prime time for sifting in the church. Because all of a sudden churches shut down, no one is meeting, and everyone walked away saying, awesome, I don't have to look my pastor in the eye and say I don't like him anymore, I'm going to go listen to this guy. Because after all, I can have church in my house. That's not church. That's not church. In Ephesians and Colossians, Paul adds a very important element to the analogy of the body. Listen, in the face of division and the threat of false teachers, Paul says we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. Notice, notice, notice. He makes the body grow. He makes the body grow. Colossians 2.19, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows, notice this, with a growth that is from God. With a growth that is from God. There is an interdependence in the body. We need each other. Some are hands, some are feet, some are eyes, some are ears. We need each other. But there is an absolute dependence in the body upon the head. He nourishes the body. He strengthens the body. He is the only one who can make the body grow. So not only is the church one body with many members, and not only is the church one body with many members who all have different functions, and not only is the church one body with many members who all have different functions and who mutually care for one another, the church, loved ones, is a growing organism, growing up into the head by the power of the head, by the nourishment of the head. That's why church growth strategies are really useless if you've abandoned the head of the body, the church, uh, Jesus Christ. That is what we want to be about in this church. One body, many members growing up into the head. Oh, do you know how much we need Jesus in this church? Do you know how much we need to be nourished by Jesus Christ? Do you know how much we need the power and the dependence that power bring, the, 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 the dependence that brings the power into our lives that comes from having our eyes set on Jesus Christ as a church? Oh, loved ones, it matters not to us as elders how many people may seem to comprise this local community. We're not counting the numbers in terms of like, oh, we have a lot or oh, we have a little. That matters not. What matters to us is this. We are, are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We receive our blessing and our nourishment from Jesus Christ, and we depend on him for its growth. 
may he grow the church of Jesus Christ. And now we go back to where we start. It is Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Loved ones, think about that next time you want to give up on the church when a leader disappoints you. Think about that when you want to give up on the church when another celebrity pastor fails. Think about this when the church's growth seems to be dependent on man. No, it is dependent on God. And therefore, the church's success is sure because he is the builder of it. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Amen? Amen. I want you to stand to your feet right now, loved ones. And I want you to consider the things we're talking about. Namely, the church is the family of God. And the church is the body of Christ. I want you to look at your own heart Do you, have you understood the essential nature of the church? Have you understood this to be your family? Have you understood this to be the body of Jesus Christ with him as the head? How does that understanding change the way you view this assembly of the called out ones? I pray so much that it affects us and changes us in such a way that we don't think light thoughts about the assembly and the gathering of the church and life in the church. But as God's holy called out people, we assemble to worship the great head of the church, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you need to repent. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I, I, I knew that, but I'm not living it out. Maybe you want to say, Lord, forgive me for thinking light thoughts about the church, the church that you love, the church that you bought with your own blood. Help me. Help me, Lord. Or maybe you're here and you say, I, I didn't know any of that. I really did think it was an event to come to. I didn't understand how deep the... The realities of the church are. I mean, you can offer yourself to God right now and just say, Lord, I want to be part of this church, the church of Jesus Christ, the expression of this local assembly here in Toronto. I want to live for you in this church. I want to have my gifts used in this church. I want to see this church growing, this body growing for your glory, for your namesake. Maybe you're here and you say, I've been here for a while, but I'm so lonely. People aren't talking to me. I feel like people aren't friendly to me. Well, loved ones, maybe you consider this as an opportunity for you to ask yourself, how many people am I being friendly to? And maybe take a step to reach out to others. And let's help each other. Let's draw each other in. Maybe you say, well, it's my first or second time here. I'm not really sure this is my church. That's okay. We're not the only church. 
but we care that you care about the church. Jesus, you said that you will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh, how we desire to see your power at work in this local assembly. The beautiful people that call Hope Church their home. In a way that gives you glory, in a way that edifies one another, in a way that sees your mission advanced. Help us. If you feel your need for help, you can just lift up your hands right now. I need help, Lord. So many days I just, I'm having trouble getting my own life together. I can't even think of coming to a place and being involved in other people's lives. Maybe you feel that way. Just lift up your hands maybe and say, Lord, I need help. And I know that my help often comes through you, through the body. Would you strengthen this church, I pray. That would be protected and guarded from error, from imbalance. All for your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.